Thanks, everybody, for joining another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web design and development. Today, we are joined by Nader. We're super excited to have him here to talk about all things Web3. We have two sponsors, Hashnode and Daily.dev. So Hashnode is a great place to host a blog, and Daily.dev is a great way to find new and interesting news related to the industry. So anyways, Nader, welcome. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I would love to hear about your background in DevRel. Yeah, sure. I think that DevRel has a lot of things that overlap with some of the stuff that I was already doing in my own personal, like day-to-day, I would say, life as it related to my job as a developer and how I learned how to write code as a self-taught developer. And over time, progressed into me realizing and feeling that it was a good fit for me. And it wasn't something that I sought out. I felt like maybe sought me out. So I would say that my earliest experiences with what kind of led me into this space was I didn't finish school and I was going from job to job, working in different areas in Mississippi, working in retail and restaurants and real estate and all kinds of stuff that didn't ever really work out. But I'd taken an HTML programming class in community college and in one of the few semesters that I was there. And I remembered all those things that I had learned. And then I had tinkered with building really, really basic websites with HTML in my 20s. And then in my late 20s, I think I was like 29 or 30, I built an e-commerce site because I was working at my dad's clothing store and we wanted to put some of the clothing that we had online because I was always interested in e-commerce and I thought that would be cool to do that. We had no luck hiring someone, so I wanted to do it myself. So I learned WordPress and PHP, and that was really the first time I had dived into any real coding. And it just became something that I really, really enjoyed doing. And I ended up obviously not having the traditional people teach me. So I started diving into community resources, so YouTube podcasts, blog posts. And I was really, really, really appreciative of all the people that were taking their knowledge and sharing it and helping other people for free. And I was able to learn enough to land over time really well-paying jobs. And I always felt just really thankful and appreciative and, and stuff of those people. And I always felt the urge to do the same thing whenever I could. So after a couple of years where I felt like I was knowledgeable enough to do that, I started putting on meetups in Mississippi where we didn't have any. I started a coding school and then helped found another coding school in Mississippi and you know would do talks and, and stuff like that. I started to attend conferences on my own dime and then started asking to be accepted for CFPs and slowly started getting opportunities to speak. And then that experience of teaching and sharing and stuff, I, I would say, also led me to starting to become fairly known in the space of React Native, where I d- then wrote a book and then started a consultancy. And then my consultancy's business was based on content creation or content marketing, I guess you could call it. And then over time, spending a lot of my time writing and speaking and stuff ultimately made me, I would say, a good fit for what a DevRel might look like. So therefore, AWS reached out to me, offered me a DevRel role. And I was running my own business at the time, but I didn't really feel like I was learning a lot on my own. I was stressed out and I thought it'd be cool to work on a team of really smart people. So I took that role and that was my first job in DevRel was working at Amazon Web Services. And all the years of me writing and teaching and speaking and stuff led me to be someone that was prepared to do pretty well in that role. And I really love it. It's just the most fun job I've ever had where you get paid to help people and you get paid to experiment and you get paid to travel and all kinds of cool stuff. So yeah, that's my story. I hope I wasn't 
too too long going back too far on that. No, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, I love that. And the piece that I love about DevRel or anybody that I interact with in DevRel, it's, it feels like the people side of development. And I think a lot of times people forget that aspect because it feels like you're just you know pecking away at your computer. But even if you're working solo, you're still working for humans, with humans. And so helping other people in that process, I think is always a good thing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So I know that through all this, you have also transitioned into Web3. So I guess what is Web3 and then why the shift to Web3? Yeah, so I've pivoted my career a handful of times and it's always been due to me pursuing the thing that I think is the most interesting and possibly going to be the most rewarding over time. So I started off as a web developer. I was writing PHP at first, and then I got into JavaScript, and then I got into Angular, and obviously jQuery and stuff before that, and then React. And while I was learning React, I was also kind of learning React Native. One of the reasons I really earliest got interested in coding is I always thought it would be cool to build an app, you know, like, oh, these people are building apps and putting them in the app store and they're making money. I always thought that would be awesome. But when I started looking into it as a, an uneducated developer that didn't go to school and didn't have this CS knowledge, the learning curve for Objective-C and Java was just too much for me, especially early on. And I was always just writing JavaScript as a front-end developer, building web apps, always trying to experiment with building actual mobile apps. So one of the things that allowed me to do that early on was Ionic, and then before that, jQuery Mobile, and then React Native came out. And when React Native came out, I really thought this was going to be one of those huge opportunities that if you learn this, you would have a lot of great work lined up. And I started specializing in that and I pivoted to mobile development. And that really launched, I would say, my career because mm -hmm. I was early on in that and I was able to build a name in there. I was able to get a lot of great consulting. I had uh, opportunities to write books and stuff. And all of those things elevate your, I would say, persona to where you can get even more opportunities. So while I was doing that for a few years, I started a training company where I was doing React Native training. And I did that for about a year and I kind of hit a point where I was just getting a little bored with that exact same thing. I had been doing it for like three years and I wasn't really learning a lot else outside of that. So I was only focused on React Native and nothing else. And all this other stuff was happening around me, like cloud computing, Jamstack stuff, and was starting to take off. So when AWS approached me for that DevRel role, it was into cloud computing, which is something I'd never touched before. But I pivoted from web development to mobile and I was like, okay, I could probably learn this cloud stuff. And I was really excited by the serverless paradigm where it was geared exactly towards someone like me who's a front-end developer but wants to build full-stack apps. So I then pivoted into cloud, working with AWS, really excited about serverless technologies and spent about three years there. And I saw serverless as a huge opportunity because it just opened the door to front-end developers to be able to build out more complex applications. And anything that kind of lowers the barrier to entry is always super interesting to me. And then I spent about three years there, but I also kind of got to the point where I had been working on the same technology for a while. And some of the things that we were doing, I thought were like not so innovative at the time. Serverless technologies are so, I would say, fundamentally groundbreaking for what they enabled. But the iterations that happened after Lambda and all these managed services kind of happened were not really step function improvements. They were just small iterative improvements. So new database might come out but it's not anything fundamentally different. It might just be an improvement of a NoSQL database or an improvement might be released for Lambda functions that enables you to kind of do something just slightly faster. But there was no fundamental differences that I thought were exciting to work on. And I like to be working on new technologies and things like that. So when Web3 
started, I would say, gaining my interest was when I had been speculating and buying and selling crypto along with the rest of my investment portfolio, which is the regular stocks and real estate. I had been doing that for a few years. And then I saw this protocol called the Graph Protocol. I was purely buying and selling without a lot of knowledge around why these protocols existed. It was just me more doing it for an investment. And then when I learned more about the graph in particular, I saw that they use GraphQL, which was something that I had been working on for a little over three or four years. And I was like, why in the world does a crypto need GraphQL? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. So then I started diving into the graph and I realized that this protocol actually exists to provide a web infrastructure for people building applications like me. I'm a developer working at AWS and we're doing the same thing. So why does the graph even exist? I spent a week diving down the entire like rabbit hole of all of these other protocols that offer building blocks for developers. And I just got exposed to all this stuff for the first time. And it kind of blew my mind that all this stuff existed and I never knew about it up until that week. So I started trying to understand why they existed. Like, why are people building these things? And then I got really into the rabbit hole of the whole idea around decentralized applications, smart contracts, Web3, and all this stuff. And I thought the challenges that they were trying to solve were just so fundamentally complex and early. And it was just exciting to see people that were trying to take on such, I would say, large problems and try to build solutions for them. And it was, again, fairly nascent space. This seems like it would be a cool place to be in and try to learn more about. And it reminded me of the early days of, I don't know, single page applications and how that changed Mm -hmm. things and the early days of cloud computing. And I thought that this was a space that could be as big or maybe bigger even way down the road. So I had been interviewing at traditional companies to move away from AWS and try something different anyway. So Coinbase, Goldman Sachs, and Bridgewater, like these are you could consider fintech companies. And I instead just decided to just actually turn away all of the offers I had on the table and start seeing if I could find a role in this space. I ended ultimately going back to the graph because the only experience I had in any of these technologies that overlap was GraphQL. So I was like, Maybe they'll give me a shot. And they did. And I've been there. I've been in this space now for a little over a year. That's great. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about Hashnode. So Hashnode makes it easy to start a blog in seconds on your own custom domain for free. It's fully optimized for developers and supports writing in Markdown, rich embeds, publishing from a GitHub repository, syntax highlighting, and edge caching with Next.js blogs deployed on Vercel. On top of this, your article gets instant readership from the growing community. James and I have talked before on the podcast about how valuable creating content is and how developing an online presence really does give you respect and credibility in the tech space. And really, there's no better way to do that than through Hashnode. So be sure to go to Hashnode.com and join the community. Special thanks to Hashnode for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Yeah, I guess that was surprising to me. I didn't realize that GraphQL is under a lot of that. Yeah, so without going into too much detail about the protocol itself, it's essentially when we build applications with the traditional tech stack, we have a very well-defined and mature set of building blocks that we can use. So we have databases that have been built and iterated on for tens of years that are very, very fast and efficient for querying and for writing data. DynamoDB, for example, is a really great database that we have at AWS that allows millions of operations or even more per second. And then you have the server where you can do your business logic and authentication and authorization. And using those two things, you can build out pretty much any type of logic. But in the way that blockchains are built, 
you have a different type of mechanism for how data is saved and read. So as opposed to having a database that's optimized for read and write operations, most blockchains are optimized only for read operations. So you have a set of blocks of data that's written over time, kind of like a linked list. And if you think about it, if you wanted to actually traverse all of that data and get some type of data aggregation, it's just not possible based on APIs that are given to you. So the graph exists to store all that data on, and you can think of it as like a database that's distributed on a network. And then the API layer that's given to the front-end developer like me is a GraphQL endpoint to query uh, all that data. That's very cool. So to kind of take a step back, you'd mentioned decentralization. What exactly does decentralized mean? Yeah, I think that before diving into that in particular, I think it might be good to say that the way I look at Web3 technologies is that they are almost like another new set of primitives that developers can build with if they choose to. And it's not like a lot of the phrasing that's been put out there, especially even me when I was just learning this stuff, kind of listening to what other people were saying, like, oh, this is going to replace what we have. And therefore, it's Web3 and Web2 is the old thing and Web3 is a new thing. I think that what I've learned over the past year is that the way I look at this stuff is that it's almost a new primitive AI and machine learning introduced new ways that we could build applications. And uh, native mobile apps gave us a new platform to build applications. But none of these things replaced everything. Instead, they kind of just offered new opportunities and new ways to build. I think that what I bucket is Web3 now is another set of new primitives that if you learn them, you have new ways to build things. And it doesn't necessarily replace everything that you had before, but it offers a new paradigm of things that you can build. And therefore, it opens the door for more opportunities. So if you want to learn a new set of technologies like smart contract development, there's a lot of people hiring for that. And there's a lot of you know high paying roles right now open for that. But if you learn how to build an app using a smart contract, it's not like you're going to replace everything that's done before. I do think some of this stuff will disrupt some things that we've been used to. So for instance, finance, I think, is going to be disrupted to some extent, maybe. So I figure I'd preface the discussion with that because I think a lot of times when people hear about Web3, that's kind of what they hear. So decentralization, I think that one of the fundamental pieces that you hear talked about with Web3 is this idea of decentralization. And due to the nature of how most of the infrastructure is built, it's usually built on these decentralized protocols that essentially allow you to have a more robust infrastructure as opposed to what we're used to in the traditional tech stack. So if I build an app, even on AWS, most of the time, it's all of my infrastructure is hosted within a region. And you have this idea of a single point of failure. You have a single database for the most part. And if anything happens to that database, you end up losing your data or if the database goes offline, your application goes down. And if US East 1 goes down, you know, like large portions of the entire internet go down. Instead of having your application running on a single server, you instead have your application or your data replicated across the network of nodes. So if you end up having someone want to query your data, you're not going to that single database. Instead, you're going to the closest node on the network. And what that gives you is more resiliency, especially in theory. Some of the stuff is still earlier. Ethereum is one of the good examples of something that actually has shown very, very long-term resiliency. But if 90% of the network goes down, then your application is still up. That's one characteristic. And the other characteristic is on all of these networks, the data is open and public and free. So instead of having to pay for your data querying and things like that, these networks offer public API endpoints. So anyone can build and consume these. And I think a good example of what we might have had, which we still have, I guess, in the traditional tech stack, is that with things like the Twitter API, which is a good example of a very high 
value and high quality API that was given to developers a long time ago that ended up resulting in a lot of economic growth, people building applications and companies on top of the Twitter API. The problem was that they just decided one day to change it and close a lot of it off because their revenue comes from advertising and stuff. It doesn't come from people just using their API. So what ended up happening was all these people that built businesses on top of the Twitter API, a lot of them just got shut down. And I think the idea behind decentralized networks and public data that's running on these immutable applications and smart contracts is that you can compose different pieces of other people's applications and data and build out applications that you can trust that are going to be continuing to function a year or five or 10 years down the road. And therefore, you have more experimentation and more composability than we have with traditional databases. That's really interesting. So does that change? I know you use Twitter as an example, and this might be too specific, but does that change the business model around it? Or does it just depend on how that was actually built? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the business models often have to do with some type of token that's has some type of utility within the network. A good example of how that might work is Ethereum. It's a good example that because it's been working and it's been running for years. Like, why does the Ethereum token have any value in the first place? Well, it's basically because you have this, this distributed network of people running this infrastructure and people aren't just going to run infrastructure for free. They need to have some type of economic incentive. So if I want to deploy an Ethereum node and I want to mine transactions, it's going to cost me resources because I'm going to have to spin up a server on AWS or whatever. The token is what you pay to transact within the network and also what the people that are running the infrastructure get paid for. Another good example is the graph, actually, where we have a more sophisticated network where we have people that can run indexers, which are kind of like nodes, and they're providing a web infrastructure for people that want to deploy APIs to the network. So they're running essentially the, the infrastructure, the databases. And if I want to, as a developer, build an API and deploy it that I think people are going to find useful because it's all public, then I can actually deploy my own API to this network. And one of these indexers will index that data that's defined in that API. And then I, as a developer, can actually earn money from that API. So if it gets used and people are liking it, then I actually earn money in the form of these tokens. And there's a couple of other mechanisms that go around that. So it's typically around some type of network token as opposed to having advertising or selling data to you know the government or whoever people are selling data to. Yeah, that makes sense. So you had mentioned blockchain. What exactly does that mean? I mean, I do know what it generally what a blockchain is, but why don't I tell you what I think it is? <laughs> and then you tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. So the way that I understand it is the blockchain, you can show the history of a product and maybe it's not related to just a product, but you can see how many hands have touched that product or where all the pieces and the materials came from. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair, good uh, overview. I think okay. the, the one thing that I <laughs> Very would say basic. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, you know, if you can kind of describe something in a clear, concise way without having to go into all the really nitty gritty details and you get the point across, that's like a very valuable. I think the one thing that I would just point out that people often either misconstrued on purpose or maybe by accident is that they try to compare a blockchain with the database. So they have some of the same characteristics. They store information and they can be read for information, but you wouldn't use a blockchain as a database for just a typical application for the most part, especially the blockchains that we've seen up until maybe a year ago because of how expensive they are. They're orders of magnitude more expensive to save information there. A better comparison 
or what a blockchain is going to be used for. Yes, it saves information. Yes, it can give you information. But instead, it acts as this shared state that everyone in the world can use and depend on without having to trust a centralized intermediary. And therefore, some of the value proposition has to do with that contract of trust that you can get out of it. So a good example of how that would replace and offer a value compared to something that we have in the past is I think banking and finance is a really great example. Just because if you look at some of these companies that exist purely to extract value and resources out of everyday people like me and you, and they extract billions of dollars every year, that money is used to fly people around in private jets and build these like skyscrapers and give these six, seven, eight figure salaries to executives and stuff. Like, where does that money come from, right? Like, if you're running a bank or you're running some type of financial institution, you're extracting money from the users. But they exist for a reason because we actually needed that to build our economy for a long time. So if I want to take money out of my mattress or I get paid a paycheck and put it somewhere secure, I need someone to trust, right? And a bank offers that trust. I can put it in a bank. I can trust that I can. it's going to be there. And I can trust that they're going to provide a ledger that tells me how much money is in my account. But what if we could abstract that away and automate that? Well, that's kind of where smart contracts uh, are coming to play. Are smart contracts perfect? Are they pristine and can they offer 100% of what a bank offers? No, absolutely not. But they are getting there as we know that today we're still fairly early, but as we continue to progress and learn that we're going to see more and better use cases of that. But we're already seeing protocols that offer similar products to banking where you end up having only a few dozen employees and with billions of dollars of transactions being processed through smart contracts, where in the past it would take a bank, you know, hundreds or thousands of people and therefore more value extracted from the from the users. So people will say, oh, a database, you can store literally a million items of DynamoDB for 10 cents. But if you want to do that on Ethereum or whatever, it's going to be thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. And it's 100% true. You wouldn't use something like Ethereum to build Twitter or something like that. Like It just isn't the, the right comparison. Instead, it's the value proposition is that it provides that trust that you instead would have had to pay someone else to do. But I think what we're also seeing, though, is with technological improvements around both the speed, efficiency, and things like that of these blockchains, as well as the environmental impact now being mitigated by better consensus mechanisms. It's kind of how we've seen the evolution of the computer, where in the past you had to have mainframes. And I think I've seen a quote yesterday that someone estimated that if we're lucky, we'll have a computer one day that weighs less than one ton or something like that. But what we've seen is you can now put a computer in a tiny chip in your in your, in your body, right? So like mm -hmm. over time, things get better and they get improved. And we're seeing the same thing with a blockchain technology where transaction costs are now fractions of a fraction of a penny for certain protocols. We're seeing that we're having blockchains with consensus mechanisms that make transactions as environmentally impactful as a couple of Google searches, whereas in the past, a single transaction would actually be enough to have a good case against using it at all because of the environmental impact. And I think we're seeing with this iteration and these improvements, we are seeing more use cases open up that you would treat a blockchain maybe like a database in certain scenarios, but definitely not yet to the point where it would be a high throughput database, something like Twitter, where every time you like something or every time you follow somebody, you're essentially writing a transaction, right? You probably wouldn't still use a blockchain for that, but you definitely are opening more and more use cases. 
Now, help me understand this. You have your own company, Edge and Node. Is that right? Yes. So that's the team I work with, actually. That's not my company, but yeah. Got it. Got it. So what exactly does your team do? So we are formed from another team that created a protocol, the Graph Protocol. And the Graph was formed by a team, but in the true nature, and I guess I would say, I can't think of the right word for it, but the nature of like decentralization, they built a successful protocol, but they didn't feel like a single, a traditional way of managing that with a CEO like made sense in Web3. So they turned the treasury and the entire protocol over to a foundation. The foundation is governed by 12 people that make decisions based on community and other people's involvement. So they took that protocol, handed it over to the foundation, and then they opened up a separate company about a year, a year and a half ago or so called Edge and Node. And part of the work that we do is we actually provide software engineering resources to continue building and maintaining the protocol. And then we also do other stuff that we're just now starting to get into because we've only been around for about a year. In a few weeks, we actually have a big event called Graph Day that Edge Node is heavily involved in, and we're going to be announcing some stuff there. So we do software engineering for ourselves. We're building out some cool apps. We do have things that we're going to be doing in venture capital, investing in, in the Web3 ecosystem and stuff like that. So that's another arm. So we have the software development arm. We have that. We're doing the graph protocol, software engineering. And then we're also doing a, just general Web3 awareness that I get to just do because Yadiv is the co-founder of the graph. And he's very big into public goods. And this idea of the rising tide lifts all ships. If we can help mm-hmm. more and more people understand and build with this technology, then that'll be improvement for the entire ecosystem. So it's really cool to be working with those sorts of people. Yeah. Well, and how cool to be on just the bleeding edge of all of this. Yeah, it's definitely on the bleeding edge because like these people that I work with have been around, they've been thinking about these ideas for six years before any of this stuff became mm-hmm. as talked about as it is now. We're going through this hype curve where things get super really hyped up and then they go down and then you hit this bottom and then you start actually seeing the real use cases. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're coming down off of that really hype and we're going to probably reach a level of stagnation and then you're going to start seeing more of these real world use cases and that's what I'm here for. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about Daily.dev. First, I think we all recognize how hard it is to stay up to date with the latest and greatest within the tech community. But there are resources like Daily.dev that provide a community-based feed of the best developer news, helping you stay current. Daily.dev aggregates hundreds of sources every few minutes and creates a personalized feed just for you according to your interests. So whether that's web dev, data science, or Elixir, anything you might be interested in, it has content for you. There is a web version of the product if you want to see exactly what the feed looks like. Otherwise, just go over to daily.dev and there's a link directly on the homepage to install their extension within your browser. From there, anytime you want to load a new tab, you'll see the news feed. James and I both have it installed and use it to stay current ourselves and so should you. So go check it out at daily.dev. Special thanks to daily.dev for being a compressed FM sponsor. I would love to talk about the volatility of this space and how it's definitely on the bleeding edge and cutting edge and some of the trade-offs you might consider before taking a role here. But to me, it's been the most fun thing I've ever done. I literally can't explain how happy I am in this space and, and the stuff that we work on is super fun. So. Yeah. So how do you weather the volatility as you're trying to come up on the curve? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I wrote a blog post about a month after joining Edge and Node talking about getting into crypto and Web3 as a developer because I wanted to explain a lot of the things that were going through my head at the time. And I think there's a couple of things to consider. First of all, you want to come into this space as a newbie 
on a team or with a project that has a good runway, regardless of what the market looks like. So you don't want to join a team that's probably working on, I mean, it also depends on your level of risk, right? If you're a single person and you think the upside might be worth it, you might be a little more risk averse, but as someone like me with a family and leaving a lot of good traditional stable opportunities on the table to go into a risky space, I wanted to be more risk averse. So I joined a team that has a very large treasury with a runway of cash that will not really depend on the market. We have enough to keep going. And I think you would want to choose a team like that. You would also want to not join this space unless you really believe in some of the stuff that we're doing. Because if you are affected by the chatter on Twitter or people's opinions coming in and out around the current state of things based on their perception versus what you actually believe in, then you're going to be more likely to be second thoughts about things when things go bad. So I think find a team that's going to pay you really well and give you a nice trade-off of both cash as well as either some type of equity or some type of tokens to where regardless of what the token is worth, you're still making more than enough and find a team that is building something that you feel is fundamentally going to be worthwhile and worth seeing. So for instance, for me, I'm not that big into NFT stuff, you know, so I would probably not ever get on a team that's focused on building an NFT project. But coming from AWS, I really, really believe in web infrastructure plays because I feel like these are the building blocks for people to build anything on. So if you want to build an NFT project or a DeFi project or a social media app, like all these things, it doesn't really affect what we're doing. We're building the primitives and the building blocks for those people. So I think that's a lot more safe space to be in. Yeah. So since this is so new, do you have a shortage of talent? Is it hard to find people that know what they're doing in this space? Yeah, I would say like a very large percentage of the people that are hired are just brand new into the space like myself. We got interested in the technology, but we didn't have any prior experience. So the best thing that you can do is just have some tech experience in general to get your foot in the door, I would say. So a really good role to be coming in from, I think, is front-end development because your skills are almost 100% transferable. You don't really have to learn a lot of new things because most of the user interfaces are still built in JavaScript and HTML. Another good example is DevOps or, or infrastructure. So if you've been working with servers and AWS and stuff, like a lot of the infrastructure is still built using traditional servers and stuff. Or a lot of these protocols are actually built, obviously, using servers and stuff like that. So yeah, those are just some things that I would say keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And so I know you talked about this curve of kind of going down and then coming back up. What do you perceive the future as being? I know that's a really broad question. Everybody's trying to guess the future, but how do you see all of this evolving from where you stand right now? I think that we've seen a lot of like really, really great, important things that have happened that were really not expected, honestly. Like when I joined Edge and Node, the vision for some of these things to happen was probably more like two to five years out. But a lot of them just happened over the last six months. So like seeing Stripe, PayPal, Venmo, Square, Mm -hmm. like literally every payment provider in existence start building out crypto teams is really important because what is the primitive of a lot of these applications is having your identity not tied to your email address and phone number, but instead tied to some type of public-private key pair, which also allows you to accept and receive payments. And I think the initial onboarding For a lot of people, especially outside the United States and Europe, where we are comfortable with our financial systems or Mm -hmm. like in Argentina, where they have inflation of like 55% and I think interest rates were like 45% or something like that. Like, I don't know if that's true. I just saw that actually today, those numbers, but I know for sure the inflation is somewhere around there. But if you have that type of inflation, a lot of times those people prefer to store their assets in a different currency. 
So a lot of those people get into crypto because of that. And then once you have a wallet set up, you can start interacting with these different protocols. But I think the problem right now is that if you have crypto and you get paid in it, providing a lot of utility because of payment processing that we see, point of sales, mm-hmm. we don't really have a really easy integration with like, I want to go to the grocery store and buy groceries. Like that's the important stuff for people. So how can we make it so I can work digitally or I can work for some company and I can get paid and then I can go spend that money in actually the real world? I think that's where we're starting to get at with all these big payment providers picking up and adding this option. So if I'm running a business and I have contractors working in 100 countries, it's actually super hard to pay these people. <laughs> like They have to have the right mechanism set up. And a lot of times there's a big barrier to entry to get that set up. But I think the most revolutionary thing that has come out of this is the simple fact that someone in any country can open a web browser, go download a wallet, give me their address, and I can send them a transfer of value. There is no gatekeeping from the government. There is no gatekeeping from have to have the right papers. Like in certain countries, you you can't even open a bank account if you're a woman. None of that stuff matters if you can just literally have access to a computer. So if you can get payments, the next big problem is using this payment. So again, with these point of sales that I think we're going to start seeing popping up in the next few years, people will actually be able to send those payments. So once you have a wallet set up and you're already interacting with applications, it makes it easier to interact with crypto native applications on the front end. So that's one area. And then the other area is people utilizing these technologies uh, on the back end without exposing them to the user. A good example of this is what we have with YouTube and some of these other hosted platforms that allow us to share content is that you are kind of at risk of being deplatformed, especially if you're outside of maybe the United States and stuff. So I was here in Mexico City and I was talking with someone. I'd done a demo last night of uh, YouTube that is permanent, meaning you upload a video and it can never be taken down and how you might back up your YouTube channel that he was telling me that he had lived in China for nine years and he had created this YouTube channel and gained tens of thousands of viewers. And it was like his thing. And then he just woke up one day and it was gone and literally nothing he could do about that. So I think those sorts of use cases are interesting, but how can we expose that? Having a way to expose that without requiring someone to have experience with crypto stuff is kind of important. So I think that using primitives like these new infrastructure, you can kind of combine them with everything we had in the past. So you might still use AWS to build your application. But you might just store this data on something like Arweave and then give that user the best of both worlds where they have the permanence of their data, but they have the user experience that they're used to. So that's one general rant. And I don't know if I answered your question. Well, <laughs> and let me, one thing that I think I heard you say, so correct me if I'm wrong, but from a content creator standpoint, it almost makes your stuff more secure, not just from the platform perspective, but because you see the history and the transparency behind who posted what content yeah. it makes it harder for people just to steal stuff or rip things off. Absolutely. And it's and the interoperability is the huge thing that we haven't really seen unlocked outside of the DeFi and NFT space yet. So mm-hmm. if you build an application that is like YouTube that allows people to upload videos and add metadata and you build a front end on top of that, the, the most powerful thing is that I can go build another front end on top of that and compete with your front end. And someone mm-hmm. else can then say, oh, okay, like I'm going to build a better one. And you now have all these different people that are able to iterate and compete on front ends. Interesting. Whereas really do that with any of these other, I would say, you know, traditional databases. Even if okay. you did, you couldn't depend on that API being consistent. That's mm-hmm. another big thing. But if you know that that's going to be there, then I could come up with a new idea that would be really cool to visualize and all this stuff. And I know that that data is going to be there. I can build different UIs on top of it. That's really interesting. Well, I feel like I could ask a thousand more questions, but I also want to be mindful of your time. 
but not our, I just really do appreciate your time and explaining things for a noob like me. But anyways, thank you so much. And maybe we'll have you back on later as things continue to evolve. For sure. Thanks for having me on. So in the meantime, that's all we got.